Good morning. It's good to be here. Our text today is found in Luke chapter 17, and we'll be reading down through 11 through 19. This is a story I'm sure most of all of you have heard more than once. It says, Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were, not, were there not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give <coughs> praise to God except for this foreigner? Then he said to him, Rise and go, your faith has made you well. Thank you, Daryl. One Tuesday morning, I came through the doors. There were boxes, bags, trees, greenery, lights, decorations, candlesticks, strewn from one end of the lobby to the other. And at that moment, I knew that we were coming to, in the words of Andy Williams, the most wonderful time of the year. I love the transformation that happens in our worship space at Christmas time. I want to say thank you personally to Grace and her cohorts, Darlene and, and Tina, although Darlene took sick early on in the process this week, and Grace did it almost single-handedly. So uh, I can't tell if you're there, but if you are, thank you for what you have done. I've heard the Christmas choir rehearsing several times this week. They sound very good. On Wednesday, our PAES students are going to be here to do their program. You need to be here on time for that. Do not come late because it doesn't last long. But they have worked hard, and it's going to be a good, a good thing. The most wonderful time of the year is almost upon us. But this morning, I want to linger one more week and savor the essence of the holiday that just passed. This morning, Colette is sharing the first Christmas message of the season with the congregation at Port Townsend. I was supposed to go there, but I asked her, I said, let me swap with you. I'll go there next week for you, and let me, let me have the first week of December, because I want to share with you a few more thoughts on gratitude. Gratitude builds community, does it not? It helps to build community, and that is what we are working on, to build a closer community here. Next Sabbath, she will give the Christmas message. She'll be all practiced up and ready to go. It should be better than she's giving it this morning, actually. Uh, but I won't be here to hear it. The book of Proverbs has a lot to say about the words that we speak. Words are powerful. We can use them to bless or we can use them to tear down. Once 
got two pages here, sorry. Proverbs 16.24. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul, healing to the bones. Pleasant words, it says, sweet to the soul. Pleasant words give life. They build up. They bless. Proverbs 16.11. A word aptly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. That one is famous for its picturesque imagery that it evokes. But what it says is the right word used at the right time is a beautiful thing. The right word. As I was growing up, there were some words that were known in our family as magic words. There were two of them, actually. Whenever we would ask for something, some favor or permission to do something or to go someplace or a special treat, and we forgot to use those words, my mother would say, well, what's the magic word? And if we were given something, like a gift or a compliment or a meal or permission to do something that we wanted to do or any good thing, and we forgot to use the word, she would say, what's the magic word? The magic words were, of course, please and thank you. In fact, there used to be a, an advertisement for Tootsie Rolls. Do you remember that? Please and thank you for a Tootsie Roll. Anybody remember that? There's a couple of hands. Thank you. You know that I'm not just crazy and making that up as we go. I had a secretary at the church where I used to work years ago, and sometimes I would ask her to do something or bring me something, and she would say, of course, but it would be nice to hear the magic word. Once I asked her to find me a parachute. Right? I needed a parachute, a real one, for an illustration, and it is not easy to get your hand on a bona fide parachute. All right? I told her, call around all the airports, southern, southern part of the state, flight schools, wherever you can. I need a parachute. Tammy, would you find one? find one for me. And she says, well, I might if I heard the magic word. <laughs> Do people still say things like that today? No? This morning, I'd like you to think with me about the second magic word, the thank you word. And we'll think about it in terms of the story that Daryl just read to us, the one about Jesus healing the ten lepers. It's one of the best thank you stories in the New Testament. And as he said, we've probably all heard it half a dozen times or more. Let me first, though, ask you a question about us. Are we grateful people? Hmm? You think? In light of the holiday just passed, I think it's apropos to ask this, are we grateful? And I think most of us, you know, would, would, say, would answer that probably we are, at least to a degree. Are you grateful? It doesn't take us too long to come up with a list of things that, for which we are thankful. Colette has a journey, a journal at home. She's got over, over 2,000 entries in that of things that she is, is thankful for. No two the same. She, she practices this with, with, a, with a discipline. But even if we don't write lists, I think we would say, yeah, I'm, I'm generally a grateful person, even when circumstances are difficult, because it doesn't take long to realize that we could be in a lot worse shape, right? There's a lot of people around us that don't have it near as good as we do. Now let me ask you the same question about the, the ten lepers in the story. On, on face value, on just a casual reading, were they grateful people? Or maybe a better way to ask it is this. How many of the lepers were grateful? 
One, yeah. You're, you're like I am. One was very thankful. The other nine, maybe not so much. Most of the authors who write on this story would agree with us. Here's William Barclay, for instance. He's one of the... He's a, he's a commentator. He's, one of the, he's written one of the most loved commentaries on the New Testament, uh, Barclay's New Commentary, a New Testament commentary. He says this, and I quote, A thankful attitude is truly a rare thing, and based on this story, only one out of ten people have cultivated it. End quote. Ten percent. It's not much. When we think about our culture today, we might agree with that assessment. There seems to be so much emphasis on rights and, uh, and uh, entitlements and on getting what we deserve. But I ran across a writer that caused me to rethink my understanding of these 10 uppers, and he made a lot of sense. He said that all of them were grateful, everyone. How many of you would agree with that? Okay. Let's think about the story a little bit more uh, carefully and see if we can agree with what he says. And to do that, we'll start the way we always do, with the context. First of all, the chronological context. In other words, the timing of the story. This is Luke 17, and so we know right away that this happens near the end of Jesus' life on earth. This is his final trip to Jerusalem. He's in the shadow of the cross now. When he arrives in Jerusalem, he will not get out of town alive. He's told his closest friends at least three times that he will be arrested, turned over to the chief priests, and then to the Romans, that he will be tortured, and that he will be executed. Three times he has said that to them. Mark adds an interesting detail in chapter 10, verse 32. He says, They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Why? Because they all knew there was going to be trouble ahead. They had heard at least part of what Jesus had been saying to them. And maybe they were thinking that if bad things happened to Jesus, bad things would probably happen to them too. So Jesus is on his final trip. He's thinking about death and the sacrifice that he will soon make for every human being in the world. More and more, as time gets shorter, he begins to taste the enormous cost of salvation. And maybe he's wondering whether he's going to be able to bear up under the onslaught of evil that is coming for him. He knows most of his followers will desert him. And worse, he knows that they don't even have a clue as to why things are going to happen the way they will. That's the timing of the story. Now let's think about the geographical context. Verse 11 says that he's traveling on the border between Samaria and Galilee. Do you think that would have been a, a peaceful, serene territory to pass through? I mean, anybody think that, that would have been a pleasant little walk? No, not so much. The Jews and the Samaritans, you know, they hated each other. They despised each other. And Jesus is traveling right on the border between these two people. So it's a lawless, wild kind of place. Probably a lot like the border is between Israel and the Palestinian territories today. And if you've been over there, it's not a good place to be. A lot of barbed wire, a lot of abandoned places, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of ruins. You know, There's frequent skirmishes and kidnappings and murders, revenge killings. 
It's a real bad neighborhood. Little walled towns with no man's land in between. And it's here, outside one of these border towns, that Jesus and his followers are confronted by these ten lepers. Verse 12. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. This is the third essential piece of the context, and we really need to think about this part, what a curse leprosy was. Um, these guys were lepers. You know what that meant, and, uh, but we need to think again because it's, it's really significant um, that we understand the misery experienced by people with leprosy in those days if we want to get this, what this story is teaching us. They were outside the village because by law and the enforcement of the law, they couldn't be inside. They couldn't be around people. They were lepers. They were forbidden from human contact. Absolutely nobody wanted to be around them. Men would gawk. Women would turn away. Children would run. They were outcasts in every sense of the word. And you can read in Leviticus, if you so choose, the specific instructions God gave his people to quarantine anybody with this disease because it was extremely contagious and extremely debilitating. We won't read those instructions this morning. But it made for a miserable, heartbreaking existence for anybody who had it. Leprosy is still an issue in much of the, much of the developing world today. But we do have a better understanding of some aspects of it than the ancients did. In the days of Jesus, it was known simply as an infectious skin disease. But now we know, for example, that some variants of leprosy involve compromise of nerve endings, which renders the sufferer unable to feel pain. And so repeated injury of an extremity like a finger, even serious injury, might go unnoticed and certainly untreated until necrosis sets in and the part actually dies and rots. In the case of leper colonies, which still exist in a lot of the world, people often lose infected extremities, fingers, toes, noses, ears, because at night, while they sleep, rats infiltrate the sleeping quarters and chew them off. And there's no pain to awaken those people. In the morning, the only evidence is a new bleeding wound. This really happens. This is not fiction. Western aid workers visiting leper colonies for the first time are often overwhelmed by the stench of decaying flesh. I read an interview uh, given by Beth Moore about her experience in a leper colony in India. Beth Moore is one of the more popular Christian teachers today. A um, number of us have used her material when we've taught small groups. She talks about uh, her experience teaching in India. And I'll quote her here. She says, I was often stunned by what God empowered me to do. He seemed to raise me above my fleshly senses and allow me to minister in extreme circumstances. However, there was one thing I was unable to do, and that has haunted me ever since. I had confidently planned to minister in a leper colony. The opportunity didn't readily arise, but after passing very close to several colonies, I deliberately did not pursue it. 
The reason was not unconcern. Rather, I feared I would dishonor them by becoming physically ill. I almost became ill just passing by. Nothing could have prepared me for the sight or the smell. I had been in one squalid village after another without hindrance, but the smell of the diseased and decaying flesh was more than I could handle. If the physical horrors of leprosy in its, in its advanced stages turn your stomach, then the emotional pain will make your heart break. Imagine living in forced isolation, forever banned from normal human contact with the people that you love most, your wife, your husband, your kids, your parents, friends. Imagine being excluded from all the common joys of living and, and, People in Jesus' day considered leprosy to be a curse from God, a divine punishment for some terrible sin. So you were not only physically and emotionally isolated from the people you loved, you were assumed to be isolated from God. Banned from public worship, isolated from the community, living a wretched, decaying life, devoid of physical and emotional intimacy, never even a touch. That was leprosy in the days of Jesus. It's good to remember at this point in the story that other places where Jesus heals lepers, he touched them. He even hugged them. But not in this story. Verse 12 says the lepers in this story stood at a distance. They had to. Verse 13 said they cried out in a loud voice. Why do you suppose they did that? It's because that's the only way they had to communicate with normal people. They could never get close enough to anybody to speak in a normal voice or an intimate voice. Lepers in those days had to cover their faces with their clothing and shout, unclean, unclean, when anybody ventured too close. They could never approach anybody, never get close to anybody except each other. It's a testament to the power of the disease that it transcended the bitter differences between Jew and Samaritan. How do we know that? Because these ten lepers were a mixture of Jews and Samaritans. Jesus would never have commented about a foreigner if none of them had been Jews. But here they are, Jews and Samaritans together, together in their common misery, their tragic plight eclipsing even their social differences and their religious differences and their hatred and in a morbid sort of way, making them one with each other. They grovel together outside the walls of the miserable little border towns, scrounging for food, begging together for pity, for cast-offs of clothing, for something to eat. There's something about pain and misery that drives human beings together, that transcends our differences of class and social standing and education and privilege. Heartbreak and pain and tragedy, those are the true common denominators of the human experience with power to bind us together as equals. Think about that, heartbreak, pain, and tragedy. 
And so here in this story about these 10 lepers banished outside the walls, we have actually a microcosm of the whole human condition on this fallen planet outside the walls of paradise, caught in a no man's land of controversy between heaven and hell, between Satan and Christ, a humanity that is isolated, broken, and infected with the leprosy of sin. So this little story about these ten nameless guys becomes our story. This is our story. And their response to grace teaches us something about our own response when grace is given. Verse 14. When Jesus saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. Why does Jesus say that? Because the priests were the ones with the authority to examine a person and leprosy and judge whether the infection had run its course and gone into a remission. And if it had, the priest would pronounce that person clean and the person could be admitted back into the community. Life as they had once experienced it would be restored. The priests were the final arbiters of whether that could happen. And from time to time, it did happen. Sufferers would get well, but it didn't happen often. Most of the time, it ended in the worst-case scenario. How was it with these guys? We don't know. Luke doesn't say. But probably these guys were not going to get well on their own. They were probably getting worse and worse, slowly losing ground, alone, except for the fact that they were with each other and without hope. We know that because they are begging for pity from Jesus. And by the way, it's worth noticing here, they must have heard about Jesus from somebody, right? Even though they are lepers, they recognize him on the road. They know what he can do. They've heard the stories. Somebody out there must have told them about Jesus. Somehow they had heard that Jesus had the power even to heal the most hopeless situations and that he was willing to heal even the most hopeless individuals. Somebody had shared that good news. So when they see him coming, they shout, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. Jesus hears them and he responds, not like we would expect. Go, show yourself to the priests. Go get the exam. Have you ever wondered what might have been going through the minds of those ten lepers at this point? Wait a minute. Go to the priests? We've already been to the priests. It's not like he's got any medicine for us. I mean, look at us. We're not going to go to the priest. It won't do us one bit of good. All the priest is going to do is reject us again. Heal us first, Jesus. Then we'll go see the priest. But we're not going like this full of pus and open sores and disfigurement, full of uncleanness. Now, the Bible doesn't say they said anything like that. But surely they must have been thinking it because Jesus doesn't heal them. He just tells them to go and get the exam. Maybe they even had a little argument among themselves there outside the walls like another famous leper had once had with some of his soldiers. You remember Naaman, the Syrian army commander? 
Remember the time he came to the home of Elisha the prophet because his wife's little maid had told him there was a prophet in Israel that could heal stuff like leprosy and Naaman had leprosy. So he came. But Elisha didn't even come outside to talk to him and Naaman was kind of put off by that. He'd come with a retinue of soldiers. He'd come with a lot of rich gifts to pay for his healing. And he expected Elisha to at least come outside and pray to his God or do some sort of incantation and see power come down from heaven. But Elisha just told him to go and dip in the Jordan River seven times. And Naaman was insulted. He stomped off at what he'd been told, how he'd been treated. But his men argued with him, remember? Come on, captain. What do you got to lose anyway? If he'd told you to do some difficult thing, if, he, if he'd have told you to do something hard, why, you'd have moved heaven and earth to do it. If he'd demanded a big bribe, you'd have paid it, wouldn't you have? All he told you to do is to go take a bath in a stinking river, for heaven's sake. Why is that so hard? And maybe, maybe some of his, these guys in, the, in this story were like Naaman. What does he mean? Go to the priests. All we'll get is thrown out of the synagogue again. We'll get hammered by all the good people. We'll get screamed at by all the kids. I don't need any more of that. And maybe some of the others in the little group said, man, what do we have to lose? Come on. Let's try at least. Maybe one of them remembered the story of Naaman. I tend to think that there must have been at least a moment of crisis for these fellows because there almost always is a moment of crisis when Jesus tells us to do something, all of us. Why is God telling me to do this, we think? This doesn't make sense. This is frightening. This is going to be embarrassing. This is going to cost me. But we don't know for sure if they said any of that. Because Luke doesn't say. All Luke says is, as they went, they were healed. Somewhere between the gates of that border town and the nearest synagogue, ten dying guys got their life back. They hit the powerball. They got the miracle. Did it happen all at once? Or little by little as they were walking? Who knows? The question is, When they realized their stupendously good fortune, were they grateful? And I have to believe they were. Every last one of them. All that they had lost and longed for and languished without for years. All that they had grieved over and said goodbye to forever. All that had just been handed back to them. After years of mercy, of misery, and hopeless decline, they were new again. Pink-skinned, full-fingered, wide-eyed, smiling, laughing, jumping for joy. They were absolutely grateful. How could they not be? I remember when I was a kid, Back in the 70s, watching TV footage uh, when our Vietnam POWs came home. Remember those, some of you old people? They would get off the plane, they would come down the stairs, they would kneel and kiss the ground. And then they would run and sweep their wives and children into their arms and hug them and kiss them over and over again. It was the same when the Iranian hostages came home in the 80s, you know. 
They cried tears of joy to be back. They were so happy to have their lives back and everything they held dear. Most people, when they happen upon some extraordinary blessing, when they get something valuable back that they have lost, and it's funny about us, when we lose anything, we kind of hurt over that, even if it's an insignificant loss, but something that is significant and we get it back, uh, people tend to be, those kind of people tend to be grateful people. Now, I, I'm, with, I'm with Andy Stanley, who writes about this story, and he says, they were all grateful but here's where the storyline diverges. Verse 15, one of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He was so used to having to shout all the time that he's still doing it, even though he's clean, all right? He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Maybe the Samaritan guy had a mama who had told him about the magic words. I don't know. But here's the difference between them. And here's the teachable moment for Jesus and his followers. Jesus pauses, he turns around, he looks at his guys, and he says, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? It's almost like he looks around and says, okay, guys, What's wrong with this picture, huh? What's missing? Ten guys healed, one is back. What's missing? It's not that they were all ungrateful. I bet they were spreading the news far, far and wide. I bet that they were telling everybody about what Jesus had done for them. They were giving God the credit. But only one of them chose to turn around, go back, take the time, and express the gratitude to the one who had given him so much. That's the difference. Oftentimes, we feel grateful, and that's not enough. It's got to be expressed. It's got to be communicated. Isn't that exactly what Jesus is saying here? He didn't say they were ungrateful. He said that only one of them made the effort to come back and express it, to say it. All the rest of the nine forgot the magic words. Nine didn't return for whatever reason, and they had good reasons not to return, all right? After all, they had been told by Jesus to go to the priest, right? They were going to the priest. They had to hug their wives and kids. It had been years. They were overjoyed to be going home, and Jesus understood all that, but he didn't excuse it. It's not enough to feel grateful. It's got to get expressed. So one came back and said it. And I wish we had his name, but we don't. Just some Samaritan guy that couldn't bear to go kiss his wife until he had said thanks to the man who made it possible. Here's the bottom line. Whenever grace is extended, whether we're grateful or not, until thanks is expressed, there's inequity in the relationship. Whenever grace is extended, until thanks is expressed, there's inequity in the relationship. We know this intuitively. We've even got an expression for it. When somebody does something nice for us, we say we owe a what? A debt of gratitude. That's right. 
How many of you have ever seen somebody give a child a gift or say something nice, say they compliment the child or something, and the child doesn't respond? Is that kind of awkward? Does that feel, it feels awkward, doesn't it? I mean, we yearn for the kid to say the magic words, not just if they're our kid. Pride plays a part in it if it's our kid. But even if it's another kid, we yearn for that to happen. If the child just turns and walks away without saying anything, we cringe because something's wrong with that picture. And that's what Jesus was saying to his guys here. Look, all 10 of them were healed. They got their lives back. Only one of them is doing what he needs to do to bring equity back into the relationship. They begged for the favor, and I gave it to them, and they owe an expression of gratitude for what I've done for them. The interesting part is that if gratitude is not expressed, how is it perceived by most people? As ingratitude, yeah. Yeah. We can be thankful people. We can be grateful in our hearts. And I think that most of us are. We realize that we have, we have been, uh, people have been gracious to us in all kinds of ways, big and small, over and over again. And thankfulness wells up in our hearts. But, and this is profound now, so listen. Unexpressed feelings don't compensate for feelings that aren't expressed. Yeah. Some of you got that. A word aptly spoken is like apples of silver, apples of gold in settings of silver, right? Because silence is interpreted as ingratitude. One writer goes even further. He says that if gratitude is not expressed, it feels like rejection to the one to whom it's due. Here's the illustration. Imagine a mother who spends a couple of hours making a really nice dinner for her family. Maybe it's a time-consuming recipe, and when it's done, she calls everybody to the table. What has taken two hours to prepare is gone in 20, 25 minutes, right? And then everybody gets up from the table, and instead of saying thank you for the effort and for how good it tasted, the family just leaves, and they go back to their pre-meal activity, whatever that was. Do you think the mother is saying to herself, well, that's okay. I know they are thankful in their hearts. I am just glad that my precious family has been served that nutritious meal. Is she saying that? No. She's saying, tomorrow night, order yourselves a pizza. Our hearts are like acceptance magnets. Our hearts gravitate toward environments of appreciation, and they are repelled by environments of rejection. Expressing thanks keeps us in right relationships with the people around us. It builds community, and it keeps us in right relationship with God. He's the creator. That's one thing that we can learn from the story of the ten lepers. One man came back to balance the relationship. He didn't come back to pay for the healing. There was no way he could have ever paid for the healing. But he balanced the debt simply by saying, thank you. The magic words. And because of that, he was the only one of the ten who, were able to, who was able to look up into the eyes of Jesus and hear those beautiful words, rise and go, your faith has healed you. And think about this. Jesus was on his way to the cross to offer the sacrifice of himself for the sins of the whole world. Maybe, just maybe, this man's expression would help Jesus to remember in the days ahead, the dark days just ahead, 
that multitudes of saved people would eventually be eternally grateful to him for what he was about to do to save them, maybe. So, last week at the end of the message, we wrote a thank you card to God. This week, before we transition into Christmas, I thought maybe it would be good for us to think about some of the things that people have done for us that makes us grateful. Encouragement that they give us, or uh, help that we have received, gifts that they have given, kindnesses and grace that has been showered upon us, benefits that we have received because of something somebody else has done. And last night as I was writing out the conclusion of this message, a name came into my mind as clear and sharp as if God had just put it there. I had no, I was not expecting this name to come into my mind. A person who has done a lot of work that she didn't want to do, but she did it. It was hard work and it was not in her skill set, but she did it anyway, and she did it well, and a result, as a result, me and several other specific peoples derived great benefit this year. And I'm not going to tell you who it is, and you would never guess, but her name just came into my mind. And before last night, I had not even thought about this person as deserving any kind of thanks. I didn't think I needed to say thank you because what this person did was required by law for her to do. I didn't ask for it. I didn't ask her to do it. But last night I realized I owe her a great, a great debt of gratitude. And I thought I need to write her a thank you note for what she's done. And I stopped typing at my keyboard, and I, I got my thank you cards out, and I picked one, and I wrote it, and I addressed it, and I put a stamp on it, and I didn't take it to the post office this morning, but I will. Some of you are really good about expressing your gratitude regularly to other people. Um, there, I, I received two texts this week from people thanking me for something that I had done, and I like getting those kind of texts. It's just nice. It makes your day better. Others of you let it slip, and I'm one of those people a lot of the times, you know. Uh, I am so blessed by other people in my life, and sometimes I'm the one who returns and says thank you, but sometimes I'm like the other nine who don't. And it's not that I'm ungrateful, I just don't always say it, and I think there are some of you that are like me. So today I'm going to ask each one of you to take another one of the cards out of the pew. It's a thank you card. Uh, we put some more in. We're not going to write them here this morning like we did last week, but I want you to take the card home with you. And I want you to ask God who you need to send a note to. And he will tell you. He will. He told me last night. Maybe it's somebody here in the congregation, and when they do their work, their ministry, you derive benefit. And maybe you've not taken time recently to thank them and tell them specifically how you've been blessed and what they do that makes you happy. Think about who that might be and write the card. Maybe it's a neighbor who has done you some kindness. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a waitress at some restaurant you go to eat often and, and you just need to say thank you. Ask God to put the name in your mind and he will. Then write the card. And in the weeks to come, we're going to keep the thank you cards in the pews, okay? There's other cards there that we've, we've kept, and people are using them. Jay says she has to order frequently to get them. We're going to keep thank you cards there now, too. And I hope that I have to buy many boxes of these 
and put them in the pew. That would, that would please me. So for our song of commitment this morning, I wanted a song about using words, magic words, to bless the people who have been blessings to us. And guess what? There's plenty of songs about thanking God for what he's done for us, but there's hardly any songs at all, in fact none, about thanking people. But there is one song that asks God to help us use words to bless him. And I think that it pleases God when we express our gratitude to other people. I think it does. I think uh, it, it blesses his name when we say thank you to the people around us. So we're going to sing that song together. I would invite you to stand for it. May the words of my mouth.